there are people throughout the world that have interesting stories to tell. Stories of heroism, acts of kindness, near-death experiences, successes, and failures. You usually hear of these stories from people that live in another state or country. But what about the stories from within your own community? Everyone has a story to tell. And by everyone, we mean your neighbor, your coworker, the person behind you at church, people you interact with on a daily basis, or maybe even you. Welcome to the DTV podcast presented by Bless Your Heart Nonprofit Corporation. I'm Jare Jean Bonjaro, director of Bless Your Heart Nonprofit, and filling in for our regular host, Brennan Mathern. It's no secret that our culture is a vital part of who we are. Our parents and grandparents are the individuals who've taught us our way of life, how we speak, our trades, our recipes, and our customs. Our community is comprised of a diverse population, French, Spanish, African-American, American Indian, and Creole. It's one of the goals of DTB Podcast to celebrate our culture and our heritage. Today, we're sitting down with Jason Petrie, who's a descendant of the United Home Nation. He's working hard to preserve his family's traditions and heritage. Jason, welcome. Halito. <laughs> so, Jason, um, we're really excited that you're here to talk to us today. So, tell us a little bit about yourself who you are, who's your family, who's your mom and dad? Halito, I'm Jason Petrie, a member of the United Home Nation. I grew up in Cutoff and later moved to Raceland in my teenage years. My dad's Donald Petrie from Galliano. My mom's uh, former principal chief of the United Home and Nation, Brenda Dardar Robichaud from below Golden Meadow. Uh, my stepdad's Dr. Mike Robichaud. So please share with us a little bit about your affiliation with the United Home and Nation. So going back, my great-grandfather was Nanes. He was uh, what they called the traiteur. It's like a community doctor or medicine man. Uh, my grandmother was Dolores Dardar. She served on the tribal council. My grandfather was Whitney Dardar, a commercial fisherman. He lived the traditional way of life. Uh, when he was ill, he took traditional medicines. Uh, my mom's Brenda, she was principal chief of the United Home Nation for 13 years. And uh, she was also in charge of Lafouche Parish Indian education for 30 years. So I grew up just going to council meetings. Um, I was a member of the Bayou Healers Youth Group. So as a group, we would travel around, uh, do cultural presentations, and dance at powwows. Um, I taught at youth camps, at tribal youth camps, where we focused on uh, leadership and cultural enrichment. We would teach things like uh, history, language, dance, crafts, uh, like basket making, blow guns, weaving. And so uh, just being Native has played a tremendous role in helping shape my identity. That's awesome. Um, tell us about what you do. What do you do for a living? So I'm currently uh, have a, multiple things. I'm a registered nurse and uh, an oysterman. So I became a registered nurse. Um, just my grandfather had a big influence. He um, he could only go up to the seventh grade due to segregation. Um, so he went to the little settlement school and. Uh, Golden Meadow, right below, uh, right above the floodgate, and so he couldn't go to school, so he just lived the traditional way of life. Even though he loved school, would have continued on, he couldn't. So, you know, just going off to college was like inevitable. Like I 
that was an opportunity that I couldn't pass up because just a couple of generations ahead of me, they weren't able to do that. So then uh, in college, I just kind of wanted to carry on a, the legacy of my great-grandfather, Nanes, who was the traiteur. So um, I would see, hear stories of how he treated, and then just growing up, I lived with Dr. Mike, and so he would treat people at his house on the weekend, kind of similar <laughs> to the way Nanes did. So it's like just the history of giving back. So I figured, you know, if, as a nurse, I can sort of help people. And so I chose that career. So, Jason, you mentioned that your great-grandfather used to be a traiteur. Can you explain to our listeners who may not know what that is and uh, how they would treat patients? So, uh, Nanes, my great-grandfather, was, a, like you said, a traiteur. He was someone who used plants and prayers to heal the sick, and he did it for about 30 years. And um, it was a time of segregation, but he treated everyone um, from the community and abroad. People would drive in. I've heard stories as far as Texas to get treated by him. Some people would, at that time, would paddle all day by Pirog to get to him to be treated. And so um, they had a few treaters on the bayou. Uh, some just specialized in like a handful of things, of ailments. But he, would, he was what they called the grand treatment. And he he did he tr- treated every sickness there was, and so uh, some of the local doctors at the time there were I guess two main doctors on the bayou, Doctor Ford and Doctor Gavois. They would sometimes refer patients to him to be treated. Um, at that time, modern medicine really didn't have great treatments for some illnesses such as like shingles and worms, like when the baby had the worms. Mm-hmm. So um, they would send those patients to Nanes. And uh, he even treated patients in the hospital. Um, people came all hours of the day and night. Uh, my grandmother would tell me stories of how parents would bring their baby in, like lifeless. And by the time they were, they would leave the house, they were running around, like she said, tearing up her house. <laughs> like just complete 180. Wow. And so uh, at that time, like, or being a treater, you can't accept payment from anyone. So. Right. He would get donations like groceries or seafood, some some sort of non-monetary payment. So he was also a trapper. So his typical day, he would go trapping in the morning. And then while he was trapping, people would start congregating at the house to get treated. And so his wife, they had a very, they had an operation similar to what we have today when you go to the doctor. His wife would act like a triage nurse. She would kind of organize everybody according to what their illness was. So that way when he came home, like he could treat more efficiently. <laughs> and so he would do the treatment. And if a treatment required like a certain herb, his son-in-law would go out to the field or wherever, grab the herb, the root, whatever the treatment required. And then he would send the patient home with like a however long supply of the plant that was required for the treatment. So, Jason, you mentioned uh, your grandfather, Mr. Whitney Dordor. Can you explain to us, like, what did he do during his lifetime? Like, what was his trade? How did he make a living? Yeah, so he was a commercial fisherman his whole life. He he would say he felt like he never worked a day in his life. <laughs> he would he told the story of being out on the water when he's trawling. As he compared it to Christmas, you know, as a kid, you wake up Christmas morning. You know, he's so anxious to see what Santa brought you. Well, when he was trawling, as he was picking up that net, 
he would feel the same excitement, like to see what the Lord blessed him and his nets with. Yeah. Wow. So this is just inspiring the love of the the trade that he had, and you know, it's something that like I love my job, but you know, I don't <laughs> go to work saying, "Hey, it's Christmas every day." <laughs> uh, I can't say I feel like I never felt like I worked a day in my life. Yeah. So. That's really inspiring. Jason, I understand that uh, your grandfather, a couple of years before he passed away, he had fallen ill for a period of time. Can you can you share a little bit about that with us? Yeah, so he he was my father in law was at the house, and you know they were knocking on his door, and he wasn't he wasn't answering, and uh, you know like well, he's in there, we know he's in there for sure. So then like he was in a state where he just could barely he couldn't even stand up and then so we took him to lady of the sea and then after lots and lots of tests we found out he had west nile and so he went from being barely able to stand but he was just determined to get stronger so he could not uh, get stronger and not give up you know to get back out on the water and continue to do what he loved to do and so um, he was out probably a, about a year. And I remember just watching him. The therapist would come, and he would do those exercises like you wouldn't believe. <laughs> you know, they would tell him to do something, and he was by the book determined to do it. You know, he would the te- therapist would tell him to walk ten feet. He would try to walk twenty. You know, he was just super determined to beat West Nile, and so. You know, he got to a point he, where he finally beat it. He was able to walk, and kind of like nothing happened. And so um, he finally was able to get back out on the water. And so just that time period that he was out with Wes now, like when he, I remember going trawling with him for the first time since then, and he got out, and he just was amazed at how much had changed, like all his landmarks he used to uh, know where he's at. Like a lot of them washed away, and it's just unbelievable how fast the coast is changing. So you mentioned that he started living a traditional way of life. Just for you know, people, our listeners who are not familiar with that, can you explain to us like what what does that mean in terms of the United Home Nation? Yeah, so traditional way of life. Um, he grew up in a palmetto hut house. Um, the roofs of the house were made out of palmetto. The walls were made out of mud and moss. Um, you know, the mattresses were made out of moss and come from family of, of fishermen. So they just lived off the land, trapping, uh, fishing, shrimp, oysters. So, Jason, you mentioned that your grandfather uh, was not permitted to go to school past the seventh grade due to segregation. Can you expound on that at all for us? Yeah, so... At the time before the 1960s, the the Indian community wasn't allowed to, like, go to the public schools. They couldn't go get a haircut anywhere. So they had their own community and were forced to kind of just rely on each other. So uh, you mentioned that your mother served in a lead role uh, in the United Home Nation. Was she permitted to get an education in our community? Yeah, so she was the... The first year she went to school was the first year of desegregation. So she went to school like everyone else, but my grandmother would have to go to school frequently um, because, like, 
my mom was getting called names and getting picked on. And if, if you know my grandmother, she had two artificial legs and she didn't take anything from anyone. <laughs> she would let you have it. She kind of grew up in New Orleans, so she had a little <laughs> pizzazz to her. So uh, she definitely was not okay with her daughter being picked on. So Jason, coming from a traditional background, talk about what it was like growing up in this modern world. Yeah, so growing up, it's kind of like I was walking in two different worlds. You know, I was doing the things that a typical kid growing up would do, play sports. But then on the weekends, I would go to powwows and, you know, talk to elders and uh, learn how to do things like make blowguns, weave baskets. So it's just a unique uh, situation when you're just kind of caught in the middle of a traditional world and a modern world. So tell us, I understand now that you're, um, you're oystering, and that's one of the trades that was kind of taught to you by your grandfather. Can you describe how um, I understand nursing and oystering are kind of two maybe opposite or different career paths. Can you explain to us how you kind of got into that? Yeah, so I just got kind of tired of wearing scrubs. <laughs> now, <laughs> now the, uh, we've lived off the land for hundreds of years, you know, generation after generation. The natural environment has been good to us, and today it's just getting harder and harder to make that same living off the land that we've done for generation after generation. So, you know, my grandfather never, like, he, even if I would have wanted to become a commercial fisherman out of high school, he would have not let me just because he knew the industry, where it was going, and that it's it's a hard living, living catch to catch instead of paycheck to paycheck. So, um, so coming back now that I'm a nurse, got a career, um, just kind of carrying on the tradition of being a people of the land has been inspiring. So we were up in Seattle. I was doing a travel nurse contract there. And I saw uh, some of my coworkers said, hey, let's go get oysters and check out this oyster farm. I was like, oyster farm? My grandfather's an oysterman. It's like, that sounds cool. <laughs> so then I went there and we saw how oysters are farmed instead of just caught wild. So I remember calling my grandfather and being like, hey, we, we just went check out this oyster farm and there's not a dredge involved. They're, all the oysters they pick up are singles. You know, they, they don't have a hatchet to break up a paquet. So he's like, chill, that sounds good. And whenever <laughs> he would say something like that, you knew, like, that was really good. <laughs> so then uh, he was all on board. So um, we started working on permits, and then it took about a year to get everything, like one of his leases converted to farmable um, land. So... Uh, we got the permit, and then for the past about two years, we've just been trying out different types of equipment and different things that'll work in our area on our leases. Um, so it's been a little challenging. It's not as easy as you know you initially think. So Jason, explain to us a little bit about your oyster farm. Yeah, so uh, um, it's Bayou Rosa Oyster Farm. That was my grandfather's favorite oyster lease, so that's where I got the name from. So we get the oyster seed from a hatchery, um, and we get the oysters. They're usually between three to five millimeters in size. And so what we do is we put it in a cage, and when they're that small, usually a cage within a cage, and then we put it out on the lease, and then every 
so often we pick up the cage, we sort the oysters, kind of clean them out. If, if crabs will get in, then they'll just eat every oyster you have. So we clean the oysters out, and then uh, so over six to nine months, they become mature and they're able to go to market. So when you started doing oystering, uh, you said that you know uh, you had proposed this idea to your grandpa about doing these oyster forms. Did he initially help you um, in your oystering endeavors? Yeah. So the the this is a completely different type of oystering. <laughs> so he was he wasn't able to like he didn't know about how to make cages and stuff like this. But he was right there by my side, trying to help me any way possible. <laughs> I was like, Hey, Paul, you got an air compressor. Oh yeah, I got an air compressor. So he was so happy to bring it to me. And if I needed a tool, he was there. We'd go to the store, like, oh yeah, we need this, this. So he was like, it was new to him, but he was not gonna let that stop him from helping out and like helping me to get started. Right, right. I think we all can relate to having grandparents who push us and, you know, want us to be better and with the more opportunities that we're given. Talk to me about, I think it's really just no secret that in our community there is a stigma associated with being an American Indian. Uh, what are you doing in your efforts in nursing or oystering or just raising your son to stop that stigma? Yeah, so it's, I mean, we've come from such a strong background and we've overcome so many obstacles throughout our history that to not be proud of who we are and what our ancestors have done for us, you know, I, I just couldn't imagine, you know, like one day, you know, I'll be gone and my name's going to be on an ancestry chart, you know, and they're going to look at my family history and they'll see Nanes was a traitor. They'll see my grandmother who had artificial legs, but they didn't stop her from like serving on the console and helping her people out. She donated her, she would sign over her paycheck to keep the lights on in the tribal office when times were rough, you know, just always giving back. They'll see my mom who was principal chief and received numerous awards for her service to her people, you know, and then my name's gonna come up and they're gonna be like, okay, what did he do to continue these legacies of everyone that's come before him, you know, like did all the knowledge of the herbs, the plants, the way of life, did all that stop there? Or like, what did he do to help and give back to his people to make sure that, you know, our legacy stays strong and that, you know, Lewis, my son can know who he is without having to pick up a book right. and read about what's a traitor, who are, who's a Homa Indian. No, so that's that's kind of the motivation to keep the legacy going and to be proud of being a tribal, Homa tribal member. So Jason, tell us what does the future hold? What does it hold for Bayou Rosa Oyster Form and your endeavors with the United Homa Nation? And throughout history, we've shown a resiliency and an ability to adapt to an ever-changing environment. So um, I think our future is very promising but it's going to be for people of my generation to to show an interest and lead by example. You know, like, continue to talk to elders, like, get, hear stories about their upbringing and how they grew up, like, like more traditional way of life. And then um, we'll have to continue their legacy sometimes in non-traditional ways, like maybe not 
uh, dredging for oysters maybe farming them you know like so it's just going to be us as a people to adapt to the changing environment to make sure that the legacies and our identity stays and that you know we don't forget who we are as a tribal people absolutely I'm so thankful that you're coming and sharing, um, you know, your people's uh, traditions and their heritage, because I think that the United Home Nation is such a big part of Bayou Lafouche and the South Lafouche community. It really contributes to who we are as Cajuns. You know, I feel like that's such a big portion of our community. Um, so I don't know if you're familiar, but at the end of every show, we have a round of rapid fire questions related to life on the bayou. You can give us a one word answer or expand on your answer if you feel the need to explain. So it's really up to you. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. So what is your go-to order at a down the bayou restaurant? Uh, I'd have to go with a shrimp po' boy dressed. Hey, good choice. Potato salad, in the gumbo or on the side? Um, I guess it would depend on who's cooking the, who made the gumbo and who made the potato salad. You know, sometimes <laughs> not everybody's potato salad goes with this gumbo. So it's, uh, <laughs> Good call. I'm torn between the two. <laughs> so jambalaya, red or brown? Uh, my dad cooked the best red jambalayas, so I'd have to go with red. Good choice. What is your favorite Cajun French word or phrase and its meaning? So the little story behind this one, it's it's grigri patasa. <laughs> I remember playing basketball and we'd play the up the bayou teams and you would say the grigri patasa and they would look at you with the fear of God in their face. <laughs> they didn't know what you were saying. <laughs> so that's definitely my, my favorite go-to saying. So what is your favorite snowball flavor? Uh, bubble gum. Clear or blue? Uh... I guess I'm traditional, go with blue. I like the blue lips and the blue tongue. <laughs> so now that you have a son, I'm betting that your wife goes for clear. <laughs> oh, absolutely. He's, he loves snowballs. <laughs> so our last one, when the boat is passing and you're in the core, is the bridge open or closed? It's absolutely open for the vessel. <laughs> <laughs> that is a highly controversial question that we enjoy getting feedback on. Okay, well, that'll do it for this episode of the DTB podcast. Thanks to our guest, Jason Petrie. We sincerely appreciate you and your wife's time today. You can subscribe to the DTB podcast on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at the DTB podcast. You can also follow Bless Your Heart Nonprofit on Facebook or on Twitter at BYH Nonprofit. You can donate to Bless Your Heart on Venmo at Bless Your Heart Nonprofit and on PayPal at Bless Your Heart Nonprofit at gmail.com. That'll wrap it up for us on the DTV podcast. Be sure to hit that subscribe button for our next episode. Until then, this is Jere Jean Valjaro. Thank you for joining us and we'll see you next time.